So, Greg, I have a question for you. Bring it on. What is your favorite sound? Whoa, okay. How long have you got? So, favorite sound. Is it the sound of rain? I kind of like that. Waves? Uh, bird song? Nice themes here. Nice nature themes. They're all themes. nature, aren't they? No, I, I mean, that, that. that makes a lot of sense. They're very relaxing. I was going to say rain is probably my favorite as well. That's a good one. And the next question, the follow-on question to that is, do you know how we hear those sounds? I'm a bit of a physics nerd. I know. So this I'm going to go for, I've got an idea. for you. <laughs> okay, so the noise happens. It creates a pressure wave, essentially, that travels through the air. You get these areas of compression and expansion. And we call those... Uh, sound waves. Oh, yeah. I was Go say. On, take it simple. Take it simple. Yeah. And then that wave comes to your ear and it gets focused down your ear canal and it wiggles your eardrum. And then that's connected to some little bones. Oh, man. You are doing so good. What are they You've already remember. got this. We're not even going to concentrate okay. on the names because there are so many complex things happening on the tiniest of scales inside your ear. And when you think about the fact that we're taking that physical input, basically a pressure wave, and then somehow transmuting that into meaning. Like the fact that I'm speaking words and that's creating a pressure wave across this room and you are then like physically having this really complicated thing happen inside your ear and then your brain is creating meaning out of those sound waves. I just had like a total moment when I thought about that, like a little bit too hard. Yeah, because it's bonkers <laughs> enough that you can turn the pressure wave into something physical in your ear and then into an electrical signal and then into that meaning. Exactly. But we have had deafness as long as there have been humans as long as there has been hearing so this is the story of a sense that i think many of us take for granted you know i think a lot of us move through our day not even thinking about what we're hearing and how we can hear it but that most of us will actually lose if we are lucky enough to live long enough. It's the story of a culture and a language and a way of life that has been constantly embattled throughout human history. And it's a story that spans from the tiniest of tiny cells deep in your skull that are only micrometers long, all the way up to the very way that every aspect of our society and its norms are structured. It includes Alexander Graham Bell uh -huh. and technology that has changed the world and the way we hear, the way we talk to each other, and that may actually also shape the future of our personal electronic devices. Wow, okay, this is gonna be fascinating. It is an epic, epic journey. Hey Marin, I'm all ears. <laughs> oh God. Not sorry. Oh, first bad punometer, ting. <laughs> but first, welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant. And you are listening to season two. Whoop, whoop. This is a science history podcast from Seeker that tells the stories of surprising yet brilliant discoveries, ideas, and people. I'm Greg Foote. And I'm Marin Hunsberger, and I am so excited to be telling today's story. So to even properly begin this whole saga, which as I have already said, is going to take us through quite a bit of a lot of things, we actually need to go back to basically the beginning of recorded history. So on one hand, it seems to me like people have viewed deafness as a curse. So I do think that there is very much this desire to eradicate it, to fix it, to do something, to assimilate something that is seen as a terrible form of difference. So what we're talking about today, Greg, is hearing and deafness, but not just deafness in general, rather the technology that throughout human history has been developed in an attempt to somehow ameliorate deafness or recreate hearing that has been lost in some cases. And in particular, 
what we're going to build up to is talking about the cochlear implant, mm. which you might also say cochlear. I would say cochlear, <laughs> yeah. We always have very fun pronunciation differences on this show, and both are correct. I asked one of my experts. So who we just heard speak now is named Michelle Friedner, and she is a medical anthropologist at the University of Chicago, and I'm an assistant professor, and I work mostly on disability and deafness, and mostly in India. And Michelle is actually a cochlear implant wearer herself. She has some amazing insights that we will dive into later in the story as well, but before we can even talk about deafness, I actually think we need to dive in even a little bit deeper into what hearing actually is and how it works. So I spoke with Jonathan Ashmore, who is a professor of biophysics at University College London, and he specializes in auditory neuroscience. So you and I already talked a little bit about how sound is created in that wave as particles through the air, they crash against each other, they create vibrations at different frequencies. And what happens is the sound goes in through the ear canal, through the middle ear, and then it ends up in this very small compartment, which is about the size of a pea, at least in us. And there it sets in motion a whole variety of both mechanical and electrical events, which eventually get signaled up to the brain. And that compartment is called your cochlea. And I think you're looking at a picture of it now. What does it look like? It's like a little snail. Exactly. It's all <laughs> coiled in on itself. And that's actually made of incredibly thin bone, if you can believe it. Wow, okay. It looks like a spiral seashell. It's lined with soft tissue. It's about the size of a pea, as John was saying. And it's filled with fluid. And the cochlea is actually separated into a bunch of different chambers. And only one of those chambers is filled with something called hair cells. These hairs aren't anything to do with the hairs you find on your head. They're actually little processes of the way in which the cells are actually constructed. And there are actually two kinds of hair cells, Greg. There's inner hair cells and outer hair cells, and they have different functions. And the outer hair cells, there are less of them, and they are so cool, Greg. They're essentially like little amplifiers. Outer hair cells look like ultra, ultra fast muscle cells. They push these little strings of the cochlea, the little basal, the strings have formed a plate called the basal membrane. They push the basal membrane up and down really fast and amplify the movement of them. So it's as though if you're just plucking a piano string, you're not just plucking it just gently. These outer hair cells make sure that the pluck, when you pluck it, is a really a big whack which makes it vibrate much a much larger amplitude by about a hundred times i love that analogy to a piano that any sound you hear it's like running a arpeggio up a piano and it's making all those little hairs do their thing isn't that amazing and john actually had a really funny thing to say where he was like if i don't know if you can picture playing a piano underwater <laughs> because your cochlea is filled with fluid but that's one of the reasons why you do need outer hair cells is you because you need the fluid to keep all the cells alive but the outer hair cells need to amplify that vibration so it can get through the fluid and essentially do its job. So I'm actually going to show you a video, which is incredible. We have a microscopic video of a hair cell, an outer hair cell, moving in response to sound yeah. and showing you what it does. Okay. I'm looking at a little, like, I'm assuming that's a hair. Hair cell. Hair cell. It's, it's started doing, it's doing a little dance. It's wiggling. It's like bopping. <laughs> <laughs> so it's doing like mini contractions and mini expansions exactly. uh, while the music's being played to it. Exactly. 
Like it's just jamming. It's literally What a shame jamming. we don't video this this recording because now I'm like <laughs> doogling with a hair cell. Greg's really going crazy. He's busting out his best dance moves. Yeah. And if you can picture this hair cell is about, on average, you know, they contract and they expand and they vary in size, but they're about 25-ish micrometers in length, God. which is about five bacteria end to end. They <laughs> nice. are tiny. So that it's doing that because of the pressure waves of the music. And it is amplifying those pressure waves to be sent on as a signal to the next part of the system. The inner hair cells are what actually turn this amplification and this input of signal into electricity that gets sent to the brain because the inner hair cells are also wicked cool. Do they boogie as well? I don't have Do they do salsa? Or is the other ones doing rock and roll? Sadly, no. So they're cells which on the one hand are sensitive to the vibrations of sound and at the other end of them, at the non-hairy end of them, they have all the machinery that makes them look like nerve cells, neurons. So they have a very complicated communication machinery, synaptic machinery, which transmits the information up to the auditory nerve. So they're cells which have essentially two parts of them, a mechanical end to them and a kind of neural end to them. So the inner hair cells are taking that, you know, amplification from the outer hair cells and essentially, you know, wiggling it down their tiny wormy body and transducing it into an electrical signal. They are essentially like transducers that we have in our electronics today, taking an analog input and transducing it into an electrical signal. Wow. And just one last fun fact about the cochlea, the presence of a cochlea in the inner ear with at least one loop, so a spiral shape, is actually one of the things that distinguishes mammals from other groups of animals. I was about to say, do other animals have a little snail inside their head? Only mammals. Huh. Isn't that exciting? So I wanted to share all of that because I think it's really important to recognize how something that seems so instantaneous is actually so complicated, has so many moving parts, and it really emphasizes how difficult it has been throughout history to understand how hearing works, primarily because the cochlea is so complicated and so deeply embedded in the skull and everything is happening on such a tiny scale. How on earth do you go about realizing that that is inside your head? Great question, Greg. The main steps forward, I suppose, in thinking about how hearing worked were really taken in the middle of the 19th century when the microscopy got good enough to be able to look at the tissue. And there's actually a whole cast of rather kooky characters starting all the way back in the 1500s who are interested in trying to figure out this whole hearing thing from Vesalius, who you might know. Oh, just a small name? Just a little Founder name. of modern human anatomy. Exactly. Often called. Also liked to draw dead people, cadavers. I mean... <laughs> Don't we all? Uh, <laughs> never mind, never mind. Yeah, he's the guy who writes the first ever anatomy book. Then there's the priest and anatomist Gabriele Fallopio. Fallopian, Fallopian tubes? Yeah, absolutely. Did he have them? I, I, well, unknown, but he definitely discovered and named them. But as John says, otology, which is this field of studying hearing, studying the ear, doesn't start to make any real detailed progress until we have a better way of looking at things, which is how we arrive at a man named Hermann von Helmholtz. And he really builds on all of this anatomy work done on the inner ear since the 1500s, but he takes it many steps further. He is a doctor and a physiologist. This is in the mid-1800s. He actually invents the ophthalmoscope, 
which is what doctors still use today to shine a light in your eyes oh, yeah. and see structures in your eyes. I think he does um, stuff with waves. Yes, exactly, which, as you might be able to tell, might be important uh. for hearing. So anyway, microscopes are really starting to get good around this time, and Helmholtz is looking at the cochlea and sees this array of fibers on what we now know of as the basilar membrane that looks to him like a piano that John mentioned before. The basilar membrane is what the hair cells are pushing up and down to amplify that sound. And here's John to explain a little bit more. And you know that if you have a piano, essentially the bass strings are long and can vibrate at low frequencies, and then the treble strings are much shorter and vibrate at much higher frequencies. And that's the way in which a piano essentially generates different tones. So Helmholtz is the first one who thinks that, actually, these fibers on the basilar membrane in the cochlea, which are different lengths, like on a piano, may vibrate in response to specific frequencies being received by your ear. So essentially, that different sections of this piece on your cochlea are responsible for hearing different frequencies. No! Yeah, right, so some of those hairs in your cochlea, different areas pick up different sounds. Yeah, man. <sighs> Crazy. And this is the 1800s. He's getting this complicated in the 1800s. Wow. I can't believe we have this good an understanding then. So I want you to keep von Helmholtz in mind, not only because he's a super cool dude, but also because he is where our story starts to intersect at least a little bit, and this is going to sound kind of weird, with Alexander Graham Bell, who is... Telephone guy. Telephone guy. But first, before we explore that, let's take a short break to hear from our sponsors. We're back. You're listening to Surprisingly Brilliant. And so far in this episode, we have covered the absolutely incredible microcosm of your inner ear and how it allows you to hear and process sound. And now we're going to talk about how technology starts to interact with that, not in just discovery of the machinery, but aiding in hearing, especially for those who may be deaf or hard of hearing, which is a lot of people. If there are 11 million people who identify as deaf in the United States, most of those people speak and communicate orally. A lot of those people are older people who lost their hearing later in life. That was our third voice for our story today, and she is... I'm Mara Mills, and I'm an associate professor of media, culture, and communication at New York University, and I also co-founded and co-direct the Center for Disability Studies there, and I'm a historian of technology. Historian of technology. Isn't that so cool? Another She's got the coolest title. job. So around the world, nearly 466 million people have what is often called disabling hearing loss, but deafness and reduced hearing can come about in so many different ways, whether that be genetic, it might be something you're born with, it might be something that occurs any point in your life, maybe as a child, maybe as an adult. There are actually some medications that can cause hearing loss, some antibiotics actually. Really? They're called ototoxic, right? We have that word oto again. Yeah. Ototoxic drugs, often antibiotics that are prescribed for infections. And just like there are many different ways to become hard of hearing or deaf at any point in one's life, there are also many ways ways, as Michelle puts it, to be deaf. Like someone can be deaf and call themselves that and communicate via sign. People can be deaf and communicate via lip reading. People can be hard of hearing and in the deaf community. So this is a very internally diverse community when we say deaf or deaf and hard of hearing. And a large portion of that deaf or hard of hearing population is actually losing their hearing as one gets older. Mm especially in populations where we're living longer, we have much older skewed populations, we have higher incidence of deafness in those populations. That's senescence, isn't it? When uh, cells start not 
growing or not dividing? I actually asked John about this, our biophysicist, because I was like, where are they going? Why are we losing our hearing? And he says that they just have a really hard job, basically. We're born with 15,000 hair cells or so, and they don't actually regenerate or get replaced in the same way that, like, say, our skin cells do or, you know, the hair on our head cells do. They don't get regenerated and... Oh, gold, that means that that number, 15,000, is only ever reducing. Correct. Gosh, I wonder how many I've got now. (laughs) I know. Uh, It's such an important and powerful sense, hearing, that, well, I mean, they all are. It's just, it would be really hard to lose it. That's totally understandable, and I feel the exact same way, and I think it's really easy to fear the loss of something that is so essential to us because we've had it for our whole lives, but I think it also really colors the way that hearing people like you and I think about or look at deafness or hearing loss in those who may have been born deaf or hard of hearing or who experienced it really early in life, and Mara has some really interesting stuff to say about that. To this day, even though older people are the number one group that has hearing loss, they're the least frequently tested audiometrically. There's universal newborn screening in the United States, meaning unless a parent opts out of it, your baby will be tested to see if they're hearing or deaf. Why the extreme concern around infants? It's because there's an imperative in the United States, and there has been since industrialization, for all people to work. Hmm. It kind of feels like in lots of our communities our culture we kind of go oh when you get old these things stop working Mm -hmm. and you're like oh we don't need to test people we don't need to do what we do to improve that final chunk that chapter of our life well and it's very intrinsically linked to capitalism like technically as an older person you are no longer quote unquote a productive member of society you have retired right and so what Mara is saying here is that essentially whether we like to admit it or not in our society people's value is based on their ability to be productive and the problem that arises that the workplace quote unquote is extremely limiting to different kinds of abledness so throughout much of human history and especially since industrialization things like deafness have been termed disabilities and always framed in such a way to be like fixed so the person can be normal. I'm using all of those words in quotes. But what if we didn't have to think about it like that? What if we didn't frame deafness as a problem in that way? And this is what Michelle has to say about that. I come across all of these quotes from people where they talk about the great misfortune of deaf people or the silent world of deaf people or the ways that silence is just so oppressive. And to me, that really is a failure of their imagination, even the framing of hearing loss. For somebody who has been born deaf or with a hearing impairment, and I'm using hearing impairment in quotes, it doesn't actually feel like a loss. It's something that they lived with and that they've worked with and that they've created a whole and complete sense of the world with and through. Wow, yeah. That's uh, so illuminating because that sense of normal, in quotes, Mm -hmm. you know, um, if someone's never been able to hear, that is their normality. Exactly. 
Um, if somebody does lose that sense, then of course that will feel, you know, I saw the use of the word loss, you know, okay, they have technically lost that, but is it a loss to them if they then adapt to it and live a full life with a different way of sensing? Exactly. And so I really want us to keep this whole thing in mind when we talk about deafness in this episode, because we're going to continue to touch on it as we go through our journey, especially around the technology that is basically created to quote unquote, fix deafness or hearing loss. But I think it's really important to frame our thinking and our conversation around this as not inherently having a deficit or something that must be fixed, something that's broken that must be healed, because the issue is much more nuanced than that. And if we come back to that word disability, which I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, we really want to think about it not in terms of the person being disabled by their difference, but instead what is disabling them is the barriers of society. So I I really encourage anybody who's interested in this to look up this idea, which is called the social model of disability, where we still use the word, but the word disabled implies that it's a fault on the on behalf of society and not on behalf of the individual. Oh, yeah. I mean, disabled by society. Look at um, buildings that haven't been designed to be wheelchair, you know, give wheelchair access, you know, or don't have accessible toilets or something like that. That's a, that's one of those great examples of barriers, societal barriers, cultural barriers. And yeah, we don't really think about that in terms of these other senses or, as you say, disabilities, as as they're often called. And it's especially important to be keeping this in mind when we move into the next theme of our story, which is what many call assistive technology. But our technological historian Mara has a bone to pick with that term. The phrase assistive technology is redundant. It's also stigmatizing and segregating. And I think the phrase itself follows the stigma and historical segregation of disabled people from the workplace and often also from civil society. So Mara is making the argument that essentially all technology is assistive, Mm. right? Technology helps us do stuff. Yeah. All technology. These microphones that. are assisting us to record. You exactly. know, the headphones you're listening on or the speaker is assisting you to hear. You exactly. Know? But when we're talking about deafness in particular, we have throughout history all kinds of attempts to ameliorate that deafness. In different archaeological digs, people have found shells and other objects that seem to have been carved in like ancient communities that seem to indicate that people were trying to amplify through funneling or channeling sound waves to the ear, um, you know, for centuries. Before electrical and electronic amplification in the 20th century, when deaf people and hard of hearing people sought out sound amplification, which not everyone did, They relied on mechanical devices like ear trumpets and conversation tubes. Yes, ear trumpets. So we've got the ear trumpet. Was that Victorian, like 18th century or whatever it was? Yeah. Where you see somebody there with that massive kind of horn in their ear. It's pretty amazing. We've got also a conversation tube, which is kind of like, you know, can on a string kind of situation. So essentially in big cities in the 18th and 19th centuries, there were a huge market for these. Like there were fancy ones that ladies could hide in their hair or make into like a hair piece. Ones that looked like a comb, um, ones that looked like men's canes. And there was also some cool technological innovation too, where there was a version of that can on a string where the recipient or the user would have a part of it that they would place in between their teeth so that they could feel the vibrations. Bone conduction. Yes, going up into their middle ear. So even before electricity, we have incredible innovation happening around this essentially consumer technology. And then in the 1870s, who comes onto the scene but Alexander Graham Bell. Here he is. And he 
invents the telephone? Does he? Does he though? Question mark? Right, because the whole uh, Edison chat is always this with the light bulb. We know with Surprisingly Brilliant, it's often a spectrum of developments that build on each other. Not one person who goes, a great idea, ding, there's the light bulb. It's a tangled story. But he is the first one to patent it, which one could argue is the important part. There's some debate around this and we could do a whole episode on it. But at its core, the telephone is a device that takes sound and transduces it into an electrical signal. And sends it over some distance. It's a big version of your outer hairs. Sounds familiar. No? (laughs) And so this, if you recall, is where we get Hermann von Helmholtz and Alexander Grandel's stories crossing wires. So Helmholtz, if we remember, physician, physiologist, physicist, all around genius. And his work was of particular interest to Graham Bell because of his ideas around frequencies and pitches and sound waves, all of that kind of complex sounds containing multiple tones you can imagine would be incredibly useful for transmitting sound long distances. So Graham Bell is, I love this story so much, this is so funny. Graham Bell is incredibly influenced by von Helmholtz's work, but he can't read German. (laughs) Helmholtz writes a lot of his stuff in German and Graham Bell is trying to recreate some of Helmholtz's experiments, but is completely misinterpreting the German and getting it completely wrong. And he actually says later, Graham Bell says that if he had been able to read German, he probably wouldn't have gone on to invent the telephone because his mistakes based on Helmholtz's work are what led him to things that did work for the telephone. (laughs) That's amazing. Bank that. That's one of those great stories of like failure and misinterpretation actually leads to, you know, discovery. It's pretty awesome. But I do want to be very clear here. We're laughing. This is very lighthearted. But Granville's not a good dude. He's like, he's not a good guy. He's not the hero of this story by any means. Both his mother and his wife were deaf. And Graham Bell is what is famously called, and he was sort of the biggest proponent of this um, tradition of oralism, which is the idea that deaf people should have to talk and that um, anybody who is deaf or hard of hearing should be essentially forced to communicate never using sign language and only using sound, which of course is like, why, what? (laughs) Well, firstly, it doesn't seem to me fair that you should impose anything on anybody. And secondly, they could not have heard those sounds. So how would they know how to produce those sounds? Uh, Very painfully, like kind of torturous education that involved, you know, like looking at how to move your mouth and how hard to expel air because obviously you don't have sound to rely on. So basically he famously started a lot of oral deaf schools and he was also a eugenicist. Right. So that's fun. Yeah. We also have, in the wake of the theory of evolution, the rise of the eugenics movement. And a number of people, Alexander Graham Bell being one of them, adhered to the eugenics movement and felt that people who were born deaf should be prevented from marrying each other and began to see deafness, especially people who were born deaf, as a congenital, in quotes, problem, later a genetic problem. So we just really have to keep in mind that this is the perspective that Graham Bell is coming from, and we're not trying to glorify him at all. And I really wish we had time to get into more the history of deaf education and deaf activism and the development of sign languages because it's so interesting. But right now, because we're working up to cochlear implants eventually, we're just going to stick with the technology. Sure. So 
Bell invents the telephone, and he founds a company which goes on to become the American Telephone and Telegraph, oh, which AT and T we know as AT and T, which is huh. still around today. They were kind of like the Google of that moment of the 20th century, and their manufacturing company, Western Electric, for a long time was the largest、uh, manufacturer in the world. And Western Electric, which Mara mentions just now, actually goes on to become Bell Labs, which is also still around today. Yep. Super innovative. That's where the internet supposedly started. And as soon as the telephone was invented, people began repurposing it for other uses than just long-distance communication between hearing people. And so you start to see things being sold to deaf people and even installed at deaf oral schools that were called micro telephones, and they provided weak amplification. These telephones often looked like a little military headset. They were often connected to like a box that you would carry around if you wanted it to be portable. At schools, it might just look like a set of telephones that students had at their desks with their teacher connected to like a master telephone set. It wasn't a lot of amplification, but it was greater than what ear trumpets gave. That's a great idea. We see that evolve into what we see now often in lecture theatres, where there's like a microphone on someone's lapel, totally. and then、uh, someone can hear that when they're sat at the back of the room. Absolutely, and you can. See here that still this technology is rooted at least a little bit in audism, or this idea that the world and existing in it revolves around being able to hear and being able to communicate orally. So we're still seeing this technology as exclusive from the use of something like sign language. And it's interesting because even as the world is making this technological progress, we're still seeing this preying on people who are looking for a quote-unquote cure to deafness, especially parents who are hearing with deaf children. And here's Mara Mills, our technology historian. The American Medical Association in the early 20th century did a study of quackery and deafness cures, and the American Medical Association did this for many different impairments. They found. The greatest chicanery, the greatest amount of fraud in the field of deafness cures, as opposed to other disabilities. Chicanery—that's my word of the episode. So good, right? I've just googled it. The use of deception or subterfuge to achieve one's purpose. Never heard of it. Chicanery. Thanks. Excellent vocab word, Mara. Thank you very much. And most of these cures do nothing at best, or at worst, they do actual harm, especially when administered to children. Whether that may be a chemical tincture of some kind, or Direct electrical stimulation of the body, which we will come back to later. Yeah, it was, that, it was that period of history, wasn't it, where that was used for all sorts really of things? Really rough, exactly. But it's let's take a step back, zoom out. It's the early 1900s. Deaf people and deaf schools are using modified telephones as amplifiers of some sort in schools and also in portable versions. And that was kind of the most advanced technology available at the time until Thomas Edison comes along and invents the light bulb. Or does he? And, or does he? <laughs> and you might be asking, what does inventing the light bulb have anything to do with deafness? Interestingly enough. Thomas Edison was hard of hearing himself. No way. Yes, and he rather famously said that it actually helped him get a lot more done because conversations with other people necessarily had to be quite short. <laughs> Fascinating. Yep. Yeah. And and super interestingly, he gets frustrated with Alexander Graham Bell's telephone because the signal is too faint for Edison to properly hear it because Edison is hard of hearing, and so he comes up with an improvement for the telephone. Edison does called the carbon transmitter because he's such a fantastic engineer. He's going to be able to put his mind to that exactly,、wow. and that actually makes the signal a little bit clearer. So it's an example of him making a modification for himself and his quote unquote impairment, but that actually ends up benefiting everyone who uses a telephone. Yeah, absolutely. So I understand the link between the telephone. 
and Alexander Graham Bell and deafness, but the light bulb and deafness? I know, it does not seem that intuitive, but the light bulb essentially allows us to better control the flow of electrons. Right, so when we see, we, I say we, when Edison and his compatriots invent the filament that we can see light up inside an incandescent light bulb, that's what the earliest vacuum tubes are based on. Okay, yeah. And you know what a vacuum tube is. It's a tube that you've removed lots of the air inside. Exactly, which means you have better control, better flow of electrons. The telephone company was really excited and they bought the right to the vacuum tube and they used it to create truly long distance telephony to be able to get a call from New York to San Francisco. So hearing aid manufacturers were some of the first people to take vacuum tubes and build them into hearing aids. No way. This is brilliant. So you've got the tech from the telephone. Then you've got the tech from the light bulb. It's like this confluence of all of these different leading bits of tech at the time. And at this point, like this technology is so exciting, but all they're doing is amplifying sound externally, mm-hmm. right? So hold, like holding up a speaker to your ear and making it loud. So in the same way that your outer hair cells that we talked about at the beginning are doing their little squiggle dance and they're bouncing your basilar membrane up and down and they're amplifying the sound deep within your ear, a hearing aid kind of device that's external, that's amplifying, is trying to aim to replace some of that function. But all it's doing is increasing the size of the waves that then go into the ear, right? So if the ear itself is damaged, I guess that's what leads to the notion of going into the actual physiology and anatomy. Greg, you read my mind exactly. So if your cochlea is severely damaged, your hair cells are damaged or aren't there. None of those external things are going to help. Right. No amount of amplification is going to do you any good. So really, scientists start to think, okay, but if your nerve is still intact, then what then? And this is where we come back to using electricity on the body. But first, let's take a short break. And we're back. You're listening to Surprisingly Brilliant, and we were just talking about this idea that instead of using electricity in an assistive external device to amplify sound, what if you could instead apply electric current directly to the body? Right to a nerve. Right to a nerve. And this is actually happening concurrently to all of our exploration of the physiology and the function of the inner ear that we were just discussing at the beginning and the development of all of these electronics that were being used by deaf and hard of hearing folks that are essentially offshoots of what we might call quote unquote mainstream technology. And in fact, the first electrical capacitor is invented in 1745 and it starts to be used in all kinds of medical applications. One might say, um... (laughs) too enthusiastically (laughs) Uh, in electroshock therapy for all kinds of ailments. It's definitely overused. And in 1748, it's used for the first time by a researcher named Benjamin Wilson on a deaf woman. And this supposedly results in improved hearing for her. But it's external, like it's an electric shock externally, right? This I do not buy. And also he's unable to recreate it in anybody else. And my personal supposition, this is not included anywhere in the the sources, but it's like, I'm sure she was just like, yeah, it's fine. I can hear. Okay, please stop. Please stop shocking me. (laughs) (laughs) So now we're going to do a little bit of a time hop because I want to show how we get from this relatively unsophisticated place where we're not making a lot of progress with electrical stimulation of the body to present day where we have modern cochlear implants that are considered to be the gold standard for quote unquote treating certain kinds of deafness. This is the general idea behind how one of these works. 
There's a device that the user wears on their ear, it might look like a little bit of a bulkier version of a hearing aid, and it has a microphone. That's picking up the sound from the environment, from the person you're speaking to, and that sound is getting translated, for lack of a better word, by this tiny processor, basically a computer chip, that changes the sound into electrical impulses. Just like those dancing hair cells. It's trying to replicate that function by sorting the sound coming in through the microphone into different frequencies, turning them into electrical signals that are sent to a transmitter coil, and that's the part that's worn on the skull of the user, so in the back. And those electrical signals are sent via radio wave huh? into the electrode or electrodes that have been surgically implanted into the user's cochlea. Wow, I didn't I didn't know that there was um like radio transmission. Yep. Gosh. So there's a cable essentially threaded into the snail of the cochlea? Exactly. So how wow. the heck, Greg, do we get from amplifying external relatively simple devices to something like this? We were actually threading a cable into someone's cochlea. Yes, it's a wild ride, so sit back and enjoy. Starting in the 30s, we start to see more academic experimentation around implantation, electrical stimulation, near auditory nerves, uh, often in cats and dogs. And then in the 40s, it starts to move more into human patients and human trials, but nothing super burned close to what we have with the modern cochlear implant. And then in the 50s, we have the first medical duo to ever implant an electrode. They go in near the ear, into the ear, and stimulate the auditory nerve. So it's what we call intraauricular instead of intra cochlear. These are great words. Right? Kind of fun to say. So these implants are much more of a proof of concept that this will work and that if we can get into the cochlea, that'll be even better. It's not really a long-term solution because these implants get rejected often or they stopped working after quite some time. Mm. So this is really just the foundation for what comes next. So after these two guys, there's a man named William House and he's an otologist and he pairs up with the Doyle brothers, who are a neurosurgeon and an electronics House engineer. And Doyle. Dr. House and the Doyle brothers. It sounds like a, <laughs> it's a like band a, name. Yeah, like a blues band. And they perform this incredibly important foundational work for what will become the modern day cochlear implant. So they start with what's called a single channel implant in 1961. What's that mean? One single you drill one channel one through the skull. Single wire to one single electrode, which means Gosh. that if, this is a very simplistic way of putting it, but if you think about channels being divided into frequencies, that means that you're not gonna get almost any finesse of sound or any detail of sound. And so we actually have simulations of what cochlear implants of various channel numbers sound like. And I wanna play you what a single channel implant sounds like. Okay. Gosh, so it sounds like something like really interference, really fuzzy. Um, and I guess that's because you're not getting that frequency range that you need to make out individual notes or exactly. sounds. Exactly. There's not a lot of detail. And so I don't know if you if you could tell from that audio clip what the original sentence was. No, try me again. So this is the original sentence. This was the input sentence. The boy did a handstand. And then this. Oh, that's, that's which now I get you the can, boy did. I know, but not a handstand. So I think as a hearing person, it's very difficult to understand how this might be helpful in any way. But John has a really great way of putting it, and John Ashmore is our our biophysicist at UCL. 
Most cochlear implants these days are multi-channel devices, just because you can get a much richer encoding of speech, certainly. The early ones were just single-channel devices, which gave, in conjunction with lip reading, for example, and other visual cues, that extra bit of information that people really learned to use effectively to essentially decipher speech. I don't know how you feel about this, Greg, but when people are wearing masks these days because mm. of coronavirus, I'm actually finding that I'm having a lot more trouble deciphering what someone is saying. Absolutely, and I had yeah. no idea that I was using so much visual information to process speech. And so it's kind of flipped the other way around, right? Where this extra input, even if to us as a, a hearing person may not sound like speech, it's extra information that you your brain can use to decipher the world around you. Mm -hmm. So House and the Doyle brothers with this single channel implant are the first to ever implant an intracochlear. Ha, no, you were right. Cochlear. No, no, no you were right I'm the first time. I'm saying it cochlear. They're the first ever intracochlear implantation as opposed to intraauricular, which is just inside the ear, but not the cochlea. And this, Greg, is where the story gets very twisty and turny. Like the inside yeah, of the ear? I see uh -huh. what you did there. That was very clever. And so we've got House and the Doyle Brothers, famous band. They sadly break up. No! Yeah, they have a, a rather acrimonious parting of ways. Lots of bands do. It happens to the best of us. Okay, go on. Oasis. Uh, the Beatles. Um... Well, we're good at this, aren't we? <laughs> Back to science. Yeah, yeah, that's where that's more of our remit. House does continue on working with another electrical engineer. We see this pairing of a doctor or a surgeon with an electrical engineer, right? That's that natural pairing that makes sense for something like a cochlear implant. He continues working with another group, continues to improve his devices and implantation techniques. And there is this huge burst of innovation. There are all kinds of research groups all across the states and other parts of the world who are working on this idea of stimulating the auditory nerves through the cochlea. Now, some of them are sharing their research. Some of them are being very secretive. Some of them patent their devices. Mm. Some of them don't. So we start to see this sort of divergence of like, what are we doing for the good of the medical field? And what are we doing to make money? <laughs> That's always the thing, isn't it? Do you uh, provide your knowledge and spec and details for the good of people? Or do you kind of lock it away so that you can make money on it. It's a really tough one, especially because people around this time, this is getting so competitive because they're thinking maybe there might be a Nobel Prize in the offing mm. somewhere, which hasn't yet materialized. But it's really making this a very high pressure situation for these scientists and technologists. Some people are talking to the press and some people aren't. So they're starting to become this awakening in the public that this is a thing that is happening. And which then that's will... like staking a claim in it yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. That's a whole nother variable in in the equation. So we'll get to that a little more later on. But back to this idea of channels, we have the more channels you have, the more frequencies are available to you is a rather simplistic way of putting it, but essentially that's how it works. So the more accurate the replication of the original sound. So we've heard a single channel implant. Now we're going to hear a simulation of what an implant with four channels might sound like. The dog growled at Dennis? Oh, very close. The dog growled at the neighbors. Oh. <laughs> but there's way more information there. Yes. Like I could actually kind of put words together. So you can see this leap from one to four channels. And then today, the state-of-the-art cochlear implant has 20-odd channels. And I want to play you what that might sound like. Prosthesis is now in everyday use by nearly 100,000 people worldwide. 
Something about 100,000 people worldwide. Yeah, the cochlear prosthesis is now in regular use by about 100,000 people worldwide. Which was a complicated phrase to yes. understand. Yes, and so I think I wanted to, to play that because we see this leap in improvement from one channel to four. But it's not that as you get more channels, it starts to sound more like something you and I might hear. It's more information, but it's not exactly like speech. So I want to I wanna sort of bust this myth that a cochlear implant helps you hear like a hearing person. It's not, that's not how the technology works. It feels like you need to learn to understand it. Yes, this is a huge piece of the puzzle that I want to get to and we'll talk about in one second. But this is in the 70s. We are getting these big leaps in innovation and these devices are really starting to become long-term viable. You can use them for a long time, you can wear them for a long time, and the public is starting to realize that they can be used to treat deafness and is becoming more aware of them. This is where Graham Clark comes onto the scene. He's the one who really brings these existing cochlear implant ideas that we're talking about into the modern era where we get this 20 channel cochlear implant because he and his colleagues are doing all kinds of work to actually separate out different kinds of sounds via the electronics. So not only are we getting variety in the input frequencies, but in the implant itself, is actually targeting different regions of the cochlea to stimulate different parts of auditory nerves. Yeah, it's doing those two really core things, better analysis outside and better transmission inside. Exactly. So he's the first one who develops a multi-electrode, multi-channel cochlear implant, and he commercializes it. He starts a company called Cochlear, and they start to become this product, right? This commercialization of a medical device. So this is the first time that people who are not part of a scientific study could actually get one of these things. And I think this is really, really funny. Reflecting on his business decisions in his memoir, Dr. House acknowledges that had he commercialized his work, I might be a little richer today, <laughs> which is an understatement to say the least. Yeah. So the FDA approves cochlear implants to be able to treat hearing loss in adults in 1984. And from there, the technology just continues to become better and better. It becomes more commercialized. It becomes more regulated, but we're getting more electrodes, more channels. That means more frequencies. And I think it's easy for hearing folks like you and me to think of the cochlear implant at this point as like a solution to deafness quote unquote, like someone couldn't hear and now they can. But actually it's so much more complicated than that. Like not all deaf or hard of hearing people can use a cochlear implant. A cochlear implant may be more or less effective for some people based on what their deafness is due to, right? If they have any nerve damage. Yeah, didn't think about that. And there's something that I also didn't even think about called the activation period, where your brain is mapping onto the input coming in through the implant. Especially, especially if you've never had it before. Especially if you've never had it before, right? So for adults who had access to speech and hearing before their implantation, it's relatively easy. There's that existing neural network. But if you are, say, a deaf child or a deaf adult who has never heard speech before, your brain has no place to put that input of speech. But that means there's echoes of Alexander Graham Bell's um, what were those schools called? Oralist. Yeah. Exactly. And Michelle has an amazing first-hand account of how she felt after she got her cochlear implant. The activation period, I mean, I was super stressed out because it took a long time to be able to hear. Like, it took a very long time for sound to become sound and for speech to become speech. 
and sounds go loud. Like I went out for coffee with a friend and the barista was making an espresso and that sound was mind blowing. And I couldn't concentrate on my friend who was talking to me. And so I know that it may initially sound surprising coming back to that perspective of, oh, this person didn't have hearing and now they do, but we have that history of a pretty big backlash in response to the development of cochlear implants. Here's Mara, she's got an interesting thing to say about this. And there was also backlash from the deaf culture community. You know, this, the 70s was the era of deaf civil rights. It was the era when the phrase deaf culture was coined. And deaf people felt like this was inappropriate medicalization. It hearkened back to like many years of you know, torturous experiments on deaf children at schools. Gosh, so the deaf community were initially a, a, a proportion of them against cochlear implants. Especially after cochlear implants were approved for implantation into children in the 90s. And we have to think about it because it was being posed as this solution, like, oh, if you get this, you don't have to be deaf anymore. Or parents who are hearing, who have a deaf child, are often still, even today, but especially in the 80s when this was first becoming an FDA-approved treatment, were not given the option that like, okay, your child may be deaf or hard of hearing, and here are your options. You right. don't have to get a cochlear implant. They can also communicate via sign language. Yeah, because it's like, you need to fix your child, and this is how you fix them. Exactly. Whereas actually the deaf community is like, we don't need fixing. And we have a language, like ASL is a language. And neurolinguistic studies even show that in your brain, ASL is processed as a language in the cool. same networks that English is, you know? So the concern is that children should never be left without language of any kind. And if the option only of cochlear implant is given, what if that person can't use it? What if it doesn't work for that particular kind of deafness? What if that child can't be implanted until they are older? Like, are they just without language because their parents don't know that ASL is an option? So anyway, this is the concern in deaf culture that cochlear implants will, there was a language, a little bit of killing, like will kill deaf culture if cochlear implants become the norm. Plus, what are the risks? You know, what do you lose? Absolutely. But of course, sign language is resilient and lots of people still use sign language in places like Gallaudet. People are bilingual and some people have cochlear implants and also sign. Some people reject cochlear implants. It's a much more internally diverse community than it formerly was. Most people, even if they support cochlear implants, feel like sign language should not be stigmatized and there should be a sort of balanced information provided to parents about both options. We do actually come to this question of access because even in quote-unquote developed countries like the U.S., we have the insurance issue, right? Can you pay for a cochlear implant? Who can pay for one? But then when you think about countries with even less medicalization than the U.S. and the U.K., less medical access, say a country like India, which is where Michelle works primarily, the cochlear implants that are available are actually old models of the cochlear implants that right. we use in the U.S. and the U.K. They're like five yeah. to ten years behind. Sadly, that doesn't surprise me. Michelle tells this story of children who are implanted with a cochlear implant that doesn't have very good noise cancellation, and they come home from a day at school exhausted, yeah. right? We're talking about that mental that burden filter. of processing. Yeah. Like, how in the world are you going to distinguish background noise from what your teacher is saying? And then, of course, there's the issue of the fact that these implants aren't like a one-and-done deal. Like, you can't just implant them and then you're good to 
go for the rest of your life because they need maintenance, they need batteries. And Michelle was saying that a cochlear implant battery can easily be like three times the salary of a low-income family in a country like India. So then we have this question of, okay, so should we be looking to give cochlear implants to children instead of spreading awareness and usage of sign language if this child is only going to then have access to hearing with their cochlear implant for a brief period of time before they go quote-unquote off air, which Michelle was telling me is an official term. So the addition of a cochlear implant to someone's life isn't a one-stop solution. It has to be more holistic than that. And to me, this is really harmful for these children, especially for the children who are successful with cochlear implants because they have learned to work through sound. And now all of a sudden, they're left without their devices. This whole thing really has opened my eyes and my ears to this notion of us as hearing people and how we shouldn't impose on people with reduced hearing, you know, our perception that one needs to be able to hear, go right back to the start, the thunderstorm, the rain, right? And that actually in doing so, that can reduce their perception of the world and give them all sorts of extra things to deal with. And that every individual should have the opportunity to make that decision for themselves and to build and to be an active participant in that. But unfortunately, that's not necessarily the case anymore because all of this software is proprietary. The devices are total black boxes. People do not have the option to customize their device anymore. Uh, you know, you can get the latest update, but how cool would it be if like this was open source? Oh man, that'd be amazing. Right? We could have this surge of innovation again if we were sharing information more. You could choose which functionalities you wanted, which frequency ranges you wanted. And along these lines of innovation, I want to end our journey through this crazy timeline with this idea that deafness is not a detriment that needs to be fixed because deafness and deaf individuals, especially through self-advocacy when we see the advent of deaf culture, have pushed forward all kinds of technology that everybody uses, including what we might call quote-unquote mainstream technology that you and I use every day. So here's Mara. Hearing impairment is very, very common and inventors also have it. And that's one reason we see so many devices related to hearing loss. But also, I would say exclusion from a social sphere or exclusion from a mainstream technical system drives innovation, drives accommodation. So one example with television is closed captioning, but also people who sign have been at the forefront of things like the picture phone, communicating via video telephony, either as test subjects or as early adopters or early consumers. And there's this really interesting concept of deaf gain as opposed to hearing loss, where deafness and the things that come around it, like sign language, lead to all kinds of innovations, like spaces that are designed around being able to see one another because you need to see to be able to sign. Uh, entirely new kinds of architecture, hallways that are large enough for people to turn and look at each other and sign while Hugely walking. beneficial to all people. Exactly. Like things that you and I wouldn't necessarily even think of are being pushed forward and being innovated around because of this population that I think often gets so discounted by society. And the very last recent most cutting edge example of this interplay between deafness and pushing forward frontiers in physics and medicine and electronics is this idea, which I'll let John Ashmore explain. One final thing that I think that people have been very interested in, which is that do we actually have to use electrodes to stimulate the auditory nerve fiber. Wouldn't it be wonderful 
if we could stimulate individual nerve fibers with some other mode, for example, by using these various techniques of optogenetics. You can make nerve cells respond to light. Some labs are thinking about whether or not individual nerve fibers can have proteins in them which will respond to light. So maybe light stimulation of different sorts could possibly stimulate with much greater finessing smaller populations of auditory nerve fibers whoa i freaking know that's fun i, I suppose it's like fiber optics yes exactly but for your brain wow and of course this has huge implications for the future you know the cochlear implant itself is the first neural computer interface and many engineers and physicians and futurists speculate that neural computer interfaces will be much more common in the future. A few science fiction authors and futurists like Hans Moravec speculate that all people will want to have neural computer interfaces for instantaneous communication. Whether or not this is true, it's another example of perhaps unintentionally a tool that was initially designed as a compensation or something for rehabilitation becoming something something that might be used on a broader scale. Like a new way to download information directly in there. Exactly. Wow. So we have been on an epic journey today, Greg. Yes, we have. <laughs> From the very beginning of our understanding of human anatomy to the fact that no one person invented the cochlear implant to the sci-fi of the future. We've met a lot of the classic characters of the history of science and tech. We've seen that interface of biology and physics kind of coming together with cutting edge engineering. We've talked about access. We've talked about the importance of language. Fascinating. It's been, it's been a whirlwind. Thanks for coming, coming on it with me. <laughs> And I actually want to end uh, with a really exciting announcement that all of our podcasts for Surprisingly Brilliant will now be accompanied by a full transcript. So they are now accessible to those who may be deaf, hard of hearing, or have any kind of auditory processing issue for which a transcript would be helpful. That's been a big goal of mine, so I'm so excited that we can now offer that to our audience. And let's round off this episode with some credits. Sweet. Thank you so much to today's experts, Professors Mara Mills, Jonathan Ashmore, and Michelle Friedner. I had the best time talking to them, so thank you so much for sharing your time and your knowledge. And if you guys, you listeners, want more information on our experts or the sources that we use to put this episode together, then you can find them in the show notes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. And tell all your friends about Surprisingly Brilliant, anyone who you think would enjoy this episode or this show. More episodes are on the way, so do subscribe to catch them. Uh, and if you've got a story from science history that you would like us to tell, or a discovery or an invention you'd like to know the story behind, you can email us brilliant at seeker.com and if you want to get in touch with us on social sitting across the table from me is greg foot who is at greg foot on both twitter and instagram and marin hunsberger is at marin hunsberger on twitter helpful but at marin b b e a on instagram listen it's not available it's not available on instagram (laughs) surprisingly brilliant is a podcast from seeker this episode was written by me marin hunsberger and my wonderful co-host is greg foot Our producer for this episode was the brilliant Katarina Kropshofer. This episode was edited by Lucas Bollinger. We had support from the team at Seeker, including Caroline Roff, Jessica Young, Megan Bates and Megan Fu. And from the Group 9 podcast team, including supervising producer Emily Feld. The show's executive producers are me, Greg, Brian Pendergast, Brett Kushner and Mangesh Hadakadur. And you can find out more about Seeker at Seeker.com. We will chat to you next time. Bye.